0: Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. Um, I'm really happy to have my friend Alexi Carey on. Um, did I say that right? Because
1: no. <laughs> there's a,
0: a language barrier always. Um, he, he, however, has no such language barrier, uh, even though he is his native language, his native tongue is French. He can. He is fully conversant in our tongue, as uh, I am not at all in his Um but uh, Alexi is uh, part of the t- uh, 2022-23 Thomas W. Smith Postdoctoral Research Associate. Um, he's part of that program, James Madison program over at Princeton University that's he's working under Robbie George. Um, his work has dealt in the past with war and liberal democracy. Um, he got awarded the 2021 Raymond Aaron Prize for research on uh, his dissertation, which was entitled War, uh, war and Law, uh, the Refounding of Liberalism Against the Conservative Revolution in Leo Strauss. And Raymond Aaron, so he he's a political philosopher um, in the academy. One one of very few allowed to uh, talk about such serious subjects as politics and war anymore, as opposed to fifty-seven genders. So, uh, Alexey, <laughs> welcome to, to High Noon.
1: Hi, uh, Ines. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Um, and I wanted to, and I mentioned in the last episode with Emily Dushinsky, um, your excellent piece over at Public Discourse um, about the political and, um, you know, what the political ultimately boils down to. Um, but before we get into that discussion, one of the background things that I think is necessary for it um, is, is uh, a, a German philosopher named Carl Schmitt. So could you maybe uh, lay out that friend-enemy distinction that he became famous for? And then we'll, we'll move to your arguments in the piece. Mm-hmm.
1: So, um, yeah, just an element of uh, context, I was answering to a piece by David Corey, which was uh, essentially um, uh, making the case that uh, our politics is to Schmittian, that people, uh, polarization was essentially a product of Schmittianism, the influence of the ideas of Carl Schmitt in, uh, in our public discourse uh, on both sti- sides, uh, on, on the left and on the right. And it's interesting because the argument he's making in that piece is essentially the argument uh, that Schmidt was answering to in in the twenties and the thirties, uh, within the context of the Weimar Republic, that regime that was born out of the defeat of Germany after World War One, uh, a, a regime that was chronically uh, weak and that uh, ended up collapsing under the pressure of uh, uh, the the Communist Party and the uh, and the Nazis, the Nazis uh, winning. Uh, uh that fight in the end. Uh, so <clears throat> what uh, Schmidt was concerned with in that period was uh, essentially uh, the um, what he saw as the excessive trust put by liberals into uh, the power of norms and uh, and uh, the prospects of a rule-based uh, international order. You know that in that period uh, uh, was created the League of Nations, which is essentially a, uh, an ancestor to the UN, uh, uh, the same League of Nations that failed to uh, contain Germany uh, once it was uh, taken over by, uh, by the Nazis. And so Schmidt's argument was, uh, and I have to say also that Schmidt, after uh, the Nazis came to power, joined, uh, uh, them, but, uh, throughout the twenties and the thirties, uh, uh, the early thirties, his argument was, uh, a much more ambiguous one, one that could be used by liberals in their, uh, struggle against, uh, these hostile, uh, totalitarian movements. And so the argument he was making was essentially that, um, <coughs> oops, that, uh, um, norms and uh, all these abstract notions that we use to organize our uh, 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 mutual relations have a, a, a concrete and polemical meaning and, uh, and therefore that by ignoring that uh, those concrete relations that we have between ourselves in uh, talking about the rules that should organize our collective life we were essentially abstracting ourselves from uh, important elements of reality. And uh, that was especially important in the case of the Weimar Republic because one of the uh, features of a certain conception of liberal democracy and liberal institutions is that uh, electoral law, uh, the organization of the state, should grant equal chances of winning to all the rival ideologies and ideas that are competing within society, and um, that's something, for example, he he especially uh, uh, dealt with in his book that's called uh, Uh, Legality and Legitimacy, uh, that was published right before uh, the Nazi takeover, and uh, the argument he was making uh, was essentially tailored to uh, counteract the strategy that was uh, used by the Nazis, which is essentially to use the rights that are granted on the basis of these very general norms uh, with the purpose and the intention of actually uh, subverting them. And uh, when when uh, you're uh, devising norms that are indifferent to the intentions of the agents and the actors, the, the political agents and actors, you're essentially uh, um that's the argument he made, at least, uh, um, subjecting you uh, to the possibility that these intentions are hostile, and therefore that these very rights uh, are, can be used uh, to destroy the regime that is uh, founded on them. And uh, so the friend enemy distinction uh, is essentially a, a, an attempt at uh, repoliticizing. Uh, our experience of collective life by uh, uh, basically making the case that any uh, normative uh, uh, system, a system based on general rules, is actually based ultimately not on a higher rule, more general even, for example, human rights, but on a decision, a decision uh, that's, uh, uh, that bears, bears with it, or uh, 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 the possibility of a certain kind of order, a certain kind of concrete relation between uh, between the various elements of society. And uh, the, that situation we mostly experience in periods of intense conflict, such as wars. Wars are situation where we're faced with the uh, possibility or the decision, do we want to... Uh, um, submit to the threat of violence, or do we want to fight? But in that case, what do we want to fight for? And that forces us to ask the hard questions: What is uh, our society? Uh, for what purpose is our society? Uh, uh, does our society exist? And uh, and I think uh, to uh, uh, shift to the actual uh, arguments of, of of the article that uh, we have abstracted ourselves from such questions. And my my, my argument is that uh, the kind of hostility that we display toward each other, each other is not a case of enmity. It's a case of, of uh, uh, self-aggrandizing uh, uh, abstraction.
0: Yeah, I, I found that um, all of these questions are, are incredibly relevant. I think right now as we are similarly i i I think the weimar comparisons are often overdone historically Mm -hmm. um but one thing i do think is similar is we seem to have come to sort of a sticking point within liberal systems where you have such radically different normative visions of the good that people start to um doubt that those kinds of abstract norms are able to to actually capture the political distinctions that that exist in in sort of political life as you you, you point out, um, so there is this conception that uh, Corey David Corey that the piece that you're responding to, um, and it, you know he's he's uh, putting forward which is a quite common one which is quote unquote our politics is too polarized, mm-hmm. right? In other words, th- to the extent that that the friend enemy distinction is relevant, it's because we have forgotten that we we must be friends right we've forgotten the bonds of civility Mm -hmm. um between us and and you know when we scream epithets at each other right on twitter that this somehow shows that the the bonds of our politics are too polarized too political and we need to get away from that back to some kind of of civil norm Um, and and your argument is sort of the opposite you're saying the reason we can scream at each other is because fundamentally we have forgotten that what politics is about at the end of the day it's it's a substitute for violence (laughs) right it it, hopefully politics works out because the way that human beings resolve their differences otherwise is through violence
1: (laughs) yeah so uh uh to take a a trivial example but uh you've uh, most of us uh, have probably seen dogs uh, uh barking at each other uh over a fence uh, but they only do that because there is a fence. Uh, so uh, w- when, when things come down to actual action, it's much, much more difficult to envision that the kind of rhetoric that we have would still be possible. Uh, and I think, uh, or, or at least the argument I'm making in the article is that the, uh, the uh, extremism in our, in our rhetoric, uh, both on the right and on the left, is only made possible by uh, uh, the very uh, peacefulness uh, of, uh, of uh, modern, post-Cold War, uh, liberal societies. We, like, it, it's, it's, uh, it's almost puzzling to me that you could make the claim that we are in a situation of absolute enmity in our society today, when uh, 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 50 years ago, an American president uh, was unsure to end his term alive. Uh, because those things happened. Uh, people got murdered for, uh, for, uh, for, for uh, political disagreements, and uh, those things were much more common than they are today. And yet, uh, we seem to live in a world of our own making by, uh, by drawing uh, these uh, oppositions uh, that are so stark and based on, on, on these absolute alternatives, either me or chaos, uh, and you find that not only uh, uh, to be sure uh, uh, on, on, on the questions that oppose the woke left and the new right, a much more general uh, 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 argument that is uh, uh, made very often today about uh, environmentalism also rests on that kind of, uh, of absolutist uh, rhetoric. And I, I do think it's uh, to a certain level uh, much more a product of uh, um, individualism and the atomization of society than uh, a problem of opposing blocks within society.
0: Yeah, I think there's a certain uh, vision of politics, of liberal politics, as having no underlying actual substantive assertions of the good, right? Where you reference the procedure um, as the right, right? <laughs> Instead of the underlying. And I think the, the right side of the political spectrum has a particular problem with this, or at least sort of the old right does. Um, and the best example, of course, is, is David French and um, Sarah Ahmari arguing about this a few years ago. Um, and, and David French continually pointing back, right, to the norms of liberalism as the substance for which the right actually stands for Mm -hmm. right so what we what we fight for is the freedom to speak freely for example Mm -hmm. whereas you know even the like even the the liberal founders of the country would say no like we have a vision of the truth and what it is to be a free person
1: Mm
0: -hmm. um but and and free speech is a procedural safeguard to get to the substance of that truth, because, for example, for procedural reasons, we might not, you know, trust the government to distinguish between truth and falsity or whatever. Um, but, but we've seen those procedural things sort of take over on the right as the substance. So, um, do you think that that kind of politics is tenable? Uh-huh. Um, how long do you think that kind of politics is tenable? Um, and are we moving towards? something, you say we bark at each other because the, we, we, uh, <laughs> we know the fence is there and ultimately people aren't willing to pick up arms over it. Um, but how much longer, because that seems to me to be sort of one-sided where the left is willing to use political power to carry out normative goals. Mm-hmm. Um, and the right seems reluctant to do that. And I'm wondering whether you think it would be a good step or a dangerous step for the right to start Essentially, directly asserting uh, substantive uh, norm—like I don't want to use the word norms because it's confusing—but like substantive, like, for example, moral assertions into politics and and legislate accordingly.
1: So I think it's also the case on, on the left because if you look at the moral appeal of uh, most of the policies that that have you know taken over uh, left wing platforms quite largely over the West. Um, uh, what the, the the moral appeal they have on, on nor, you know, uh, average voters, that the, the the argument you hear all the time is, uh, it's not taking anything from you or uh, uh, it's not doing you anything. So why would you refuse that right to uh, to uh, the persons that are uh, asking for it? And so I, I think it's uh, uh, th- that kind of procedural, uh, individualistic uh, politics is is a defining uh, aspect of our uh, of our of our current uh, situation. I, I don't think it's especially a problem on, on the right, uh, even though uh, it looks like uh, uh, the left is making uh, uh, a more substan- substantive claim because it's uh, it's using uh, uh, um, uh, institutions to uh, to enforce uh, those uh, those new rights, but uh, but I think it's a pro- uh, the, the, the at the bottom of this in, on both sides is uh, the illusion that we can uh, create collective collective government on the basis of the primacy of rights. And the the thing that uh, uh, um, polarization makes visible is the extent to which, as you said, we take for granted. Uh, these institutions that are necessary to secure those rights, so much so that in claiming those rights, we come to use a rhetoric that is very strange, very odd. Like to external observers decades away from us, it will sound very strange that people would talk to each other uh, in such a fashion to, to ask uh, things from each other. Uh, uh, it It seems obvious to me that you can only use those words uh, if uh, you you think the argument is so uh, uh, obvious and uh, a matter of fact that you don't actually need to convince others uh, that it's legitimate. And uh, to come back to Karl Schmidt, like I, I mentioned the title of his book, and it was all about that, the difference between legitimacy and legality. Uh, uh, a certain thing can be legal; it doesn't uh, necessarily make it legitimate. Legitimacy is a much more evanescent concept, of course, and it's much harder to pin down. Uh, but everyone knows uh, vaguely what it uh, what it amounts to. Uh, it, for example, it's not because someone was elected that everything it does seems uh, sound, reasonable, etc. Uh, when it does it does seem to us that his, uh, uh, that his rule is legitimate. And, uh, and I think that's a, a nuance that we, we fail to capture today. In, uh, and that um, sort of uh, structures the way we interact with each other. And I don't think so probably, uh, I, I don't know if you were referring to this when uh, uh, suggesting that the right might, make those uh, normative claims or substantive claims about our collective life. But uh, there has been a a rising uh, uh, movement on the right uh, um, uh, sliding towards uh, what is commonly called integralism, for example. Uh, And uh, I I don't think that's a more uh, credible or... um, uh, yeah, a more credible platform to restore the kind of unity that we need if we are to uh, govern ourselves. Um, I don't. I don't think it's a project that's uh, able in the society that we have to uh, to actually uh, make people feel that political participation is actually a good worth exercising and protecting. And I've often heard, not often, but. Surprisingly, uh, uh, a surprising number of times, uh, people with those ideas uh, suggesting that the only political solution to uh, their project is actually a partition of the U.S., uh, because they, they acknowledge that that project cannot, you know, uh, uh, raise the support of uh, what's the population? three three hundred 350 uh, million uh, Americans. So, um Unless you think it's a good idea to partition the republic, uh, I, I think it's 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 not necessarily I, it's not necessarily a, a sound idea. Uh, but uh, it doesn't mean that uh, there aren't substantive claims, uh, moral claims that cannot be main, made uh, in, in the name of uh, of politics. Uh, and, and certainly uh, we uh, we increasingly lack the kind of civic virtue that makes uh liberal institutions work because what people often tend to forget uh uh what the the illusion they live under is that pluralism what used to be you know the diversity of interest and ideas what used to be called uh uh, factions uh when the federalist papers uh, were uh were written uh only works if it counters the force that produces majorities you know, having factions in a in a population that doesn't want to stick together is not going to produce the common good. It's uh, the, the, the 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 theory of factions uh, uh, by the founder uh, was premised on the idea that people wanted to stick together, and that therefore we needed to protect ourselves from that powerful drive that could lead to tyranny. But uh, in, in, in a society where uh, people would rather live far apart, uh, th- that isn't uh, like this liberal, uh, these liberal conceptions of politics actually cease to work. Most of them are premised on a strong idea of civic virtue, despite the fact that most liberal theorists uh, today uh, completely ignore that fact. Yeah,
0: I mean, th- it also uh, implies the existence of I mean, in in this case, through and with many, you know, checks and balances and sort of balancing acts. But at the end of the day, it implies that there is a legitimacy to a majority making political Mm -hmm. like capital P political decisions. Right. And maybe in a different system, it's not democracy or a majority. It's a king or whatever. But I, I agree with you that we don't solve the problem of modernity by changing the system. And it seems like there's an underlying problem of authority and legitimacy um when you don't accept so you you you, uh said something earlier that that um i think is really right which is that essentially these asks that we make on each other um as a a political community living together right a body politic um we're not really we're not really making those asks anymore as though they could be refused Mm -hmm. Right. There's no like um, th- there's no uh, suggestion that those things can be legitimately refused, whatever the mechanism is for that. Right. Whether it's democracy, whether it's monarchy, whether it's you know whatever, um, there's no acceptance that th- the body politic has the ability and legitimacy to make moral claims at all and, and properly political claims at all. Um, I sort of disagree with you. The left doesn't, there's at least a portion of the left. I think the the post postmodernist left is making those claims. Um, and that's why you see that part of the left be, I mean, while the Washington Post or whatever is is howling about norms, right? You see parts of the left actively attacking and, and delegitimizing any of those liberal norms. Do you think that some of that inability to get to what I mean, even before the Enlightenment, sort of cl- was classically called politics, right? The sort of meat and potatoes of politics, which was deciding on a good through some legitimate means, and the, the how you got to a legitimate means was itself the discussion between, you know, mm-hmm. democracy or or oligarchy or right um, or or uh, authoritarianism or monarchy, right? But but that basic of politics, it seems to me connected that we we essentially are ruled by bureaucrat in large. Degree, and it seems to me that a bureaucracy is a uh, like function, a method of ruling that necessarily drains a lot of the politics out of um, out of, of some of these like moral questions. So, for, mm-hmm. for to give a concrete example, right, um, and this one was about the courts, but I think it's a similarly similar function where it's it's decided by predetermined procedural norms. Mm-hmm. When, when the court pulled the issue of abortion out of the body politic in 1973, right, um, it essentially said, OK, well, this is no longer a political question, right? We are setting this outside of the political process in America that would be in the state level and and basically through Republican representat- representation, right? We're pulling it out of that and we're saying this is no longer a question on the table for that you know, um, those, those, that self-government, right. Where, where one set of neighbors talks to another set of neighbors and says, you know, I want abortion to be legal. And the other one says, well, I don't want it to be legal. I believe it's wrong. And there's some way of adjudicating that it got pulled out of that process, you know, and it seems like there's a lot of issues, whether it's through the courts or through the bureaucracy, that, that, that muscle of American self-government is incredibly atrophied on any questions of substance. Like we yell at each other over which sort of leader to elect but on those questions of substance, there are so few questions actually left to that adjudication of the political process that it's hard for me to imagine. It's hard for me to imagine a substantive politics in that sense. Mm-hmm.
1: No, yeah, I mean, w- once you uh, uh, understand politics to be based on the primacy of rights, uh, and therefore on the exercise of those rights, and that you understand freedom to be nothing but the exercise of rights. Uh, what you mean is that no idea that I have about how I should live my life should be a a sufficient basis for me claiming to exercise power and therefore give duties to others, uh, which was, uh, you know, uh, the the way uh, politics, uh, as you said, worked uh, before the the modern invention. uh, And... uh, That's where another element of the article comes up, uh, which was more developed in in Corey's essay, uh, which is the problem of anthropology, Uh, uh, because once you refuse to have a vision of the good life, you are still forced to think about what humans uh, uh, do. Uh, but you no longer ask the question, what should a good human do, a good human being do? You're, you're forced to ask the question in very general terms, uh, because since any idea that I can have about ethics shouldn't grant me any political power. So if I want to actually think about institutions, uh, uh, I, I'm forced to ask not uh, what I will do in given circumstances, but what men, what men in general do. And that's where uh, you have this strange uh, thing in uh, in the history of political philosophy that philosophers start, start to ask the question, is human nature inherently good or inherently bad? And various philosophers have provided various uh, answers to that question. But it all comes down to, uh, if you're pessimistic about human nature, uh, what you mean by that is that we need to have very constraining and powerful institutions to be able to live peacefully. Uh, if you're very optimistic, you uh, argue to the contrary. We need very little uh, um, uh, inst- uh, constraints, external constraints to be able to, uh, to live peacefully. But in, in both cases, the claim you're making is that the goal of, uh, of politics is, is peace at all costs. Peace understood as coexistence. So peace, essentially, without uh, uh, a moral order. Uh, so peace made possible by impersonal rules and institution that made that make people that have various uh, ideas about ethics uh, 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 capable of not killing each other. And uh, I think that that's basically the, the kind of uh, 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 deep movement in, our, uh, uh, in, the, in the history of our political philosophy that led uh, to the bureaucratic uh, rule that, that you were uh, hinting, hinting at. And <clears throat> uh, it reminds me also of uh, uh, something you said in the previous uh, podcast, uh, uh, or maybe it was uh, the person you were interviewing. I, I can't remember her name. Uh, but uh, about uh, people no longer being able to talk to neighbors. One of the big differences, uh, one of the big innovations of uh, political modernity is the emergence of nations. Uh, Most of what we understand about politics uh, before modernity comes from the Greek city. Uh, And the Greek city was uh, essentially uh, composed of as many citizens as one person can know by face. Uh, it was a very natural unit, uh, you know, about 20,000 uh, people or a bit more. Uh, so citizens were essentially people who knew each other personally, even at you know at a uh, relatively uh, low level, but at least knowing your face. Uh, nations can't have that. You you might know your neighbors, you might know a lot of people in your in the city you live in, you might know a lot of people in the state you live in. But our political condition is defined by a very important thing, which is we ignore, we don't know most of the fellow citizens we govern ourselves with, which means that we can only get to know them at some level through discourse, through things heard and uh, said about each other. And uh, that's why we have uh, a public uh, uh, public discussion in a way that's very different from the Greek assembly. Uh, uh what we do in the media is not uh, a voting voting laws or making political decisions we we talk about things as if and in a way as if our words don't have consequences but i think that's one of the metrics of polarization the matrix of polarization is shouting insults at, at each other as if uh, uh words didn't lead to action and uh, uh <clears throat> I think that's, uh, I mean, it's something we can't do without because as I said, nations are very different political units than Greek cities, but it's something we should be very mindful mindful of uh, because uh, words do have consequences. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> if uh, you don't have that kind of civic unity, sense of civic unity, some re- restrain in the use of public discourse, uh, um, I-, I think you're basically unraveling uh, the whole uh, the whole fabric of what makes m- modern freedom uh, to to a, a, a certain extent uh, 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 something worth uh, preser- preserving.
0: So there there are two um, additions even to the, the the sort of scaling up um, problems that you're dealing you you're referencing right from from the city the sort of um, classical philosophy political philosophy the city right um, to essentially mass Uh right either mass democracy mass nationhood right um that itself is quite new as you point out but um even even more so now like there's the next level of the the abstraction of the unit right where now we have international Mm -hmm. um discourse and that has been helped along by the, the communication revolution, right. Mm -hmm. That is the internet. And before that, you know, instant communication via phones, right. We can communicate with people, um, who are not proximate to us in a, in a very immediate way that is like unthinkable, um, you know, was unthinkable even, even 50 years ago or a hundred years ago. I mean, how does that impact this, this aspect of sort of a, to, 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 um, use a new analogy as opposed to the two dogs with the fence in front of them it's what you're saying now is that we're we're all like drunks in a bar right yelling insults at each other but you know sometimes you say the wrong thing and somebody smacks you in the face right mm-hmm. um and you're saying we we have forgotten that in fact there there is a um there are tangible consequences to our politics because mm-hmm. we've abstracted so much away from this but how is that all impacted by what I would say is the sort of the decline of the nation state in comparison to the ability to talk to people all over the world, and just one subset of that, of course, is now we're seeing in a lot of different countries a, a sort of national level backlash to an international recognition between elites that they might actually have more interests in common with each other than they do sort of vertically within the nation. Right, that, that a nation's elites may have more in common with another nation's elites in terms of interests than they may have in common with their their, quote-unquote national citizen brothers, right?
1: No, it's certainly the case that uh, the the communication revolution has uh, uh, aggravated to a large extent uh, something that was uh, underneath uh, from the beginning. You know, 50 years ago, you might have had any kind of politics, but most of the people you had to live with on a daily basis and work with and act with uh, uh w- might be of, uh, of a different mind and so that uh, that connection to con- uh, immediate and concrete circumstances of living uh, and uh, to a world of concrete action, uh, I think tempered uh, uh, that uh, ab- um, that potential for abstraction that is contained in in, in modern politics. Uh, and certainly social networks, uh, uh have uh, basically provided us with a means to uh, uh, you know, uh, relate to people that are very far away and set ourselves against others that might be our neighbors. Uh, but again, in 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 a very remote uh, uh, fashion that uh, uh, increases even even more the likelihood that, you will be tempted by uh, uh extreme rhetoric it's uh you know behind the safety of your screen it's very easy to insult uh, uh others I, I i remember uh back in france when I, I i was teaching philosophy one of one of my students was uh, uh from Chechnya uh and uh <clears throat> We, we were discussing uh, between class and uh, he, he made a funny comment uh, at that time. I didn't uh, pay much attention to it, but it's, uh, he, he told me about a fight he had had in the streets here. And he said, you know, back home, uh, people don't talk like that to each other because they know that any word beyond the line might lead to a fight and a fight might lead to terrible consequences. But here in, in, in France, you know, people have... A, a very easy, uh, uh, like they're very loose on, on what they tell each other. And uh, of course, no one wants to be like Chechenia, Uh, But I, I think it was funny that he would notice uh, that aspect that is infused in our, in our daily life that we're so sure that thanks to our institutions, we're safe. And that from being safe uh, and not needing to seek peace because we have it. Uh, we can make, you know, grandiose claims to the world and uh, demand that our, uh, our, our, those claims uh, uh, be satisfied and a, a lot of our politics is actually, I, I, I think, uh, uh, a substitute to uh, actual conversation, uh, we, we, uh, our actual uh, collective action. Uh, we ask things in, in such a way that our discourse is not really addressed at our fellow citizens and equals it is addressed at impersonal institutions that are uh, tasked uh, with uh, satisfying our individual claims. But uh, we wouldn't talk like that if we were actually in a position, uh, uh, no, not in a position, but if we were actually under the, uh, the necessity to make the case to people that are our equals that these things are good and we, uh, I have a right to them.
0: Sorry, I'm not sure I
1: answered your question. I, I digressed.
0: No, no, you answered the question. I, I was thinking um, as you were saying that that there, there's all those surveys, both in Western European countries, and it tends to be a little bit different, right? I'm sure it's even more different in Chechnya. But uh, you know, is as you go east, um, and the immediacy of international politics and war becomes more uh, more real, and as we see now in, in Ukraine, of course. Um, there tends to be higher numbers of this, but when you go to Western Europe or the United States, and the U.S. until recently was pretty high numbers and then started to to plunge. But you ask in surveys, would you be willing to fight for your country, right, in a war? Um, and you see some like astronomically low numbers, right, across like Scandinavia, France, right. You get numbers like 23 percent or you know 30 percent of citizens say that they'll fight for their country you know as you're saying on the 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 national level it's also true on the international level that you know we've like forgotten that in fact that the state of nature of of people right um is when they come up against conflict whether that's citizen versus citizen who have substantively different and opposing views of the good um or between nation and nation with you know opposing interests Mm -hmm. right that actually the state of of nature is that they fight and Mm -hmm. they're in a very real and tangible way, and one you know vanquishes the other and imposes its will on the other, right? Um, who no longer you know either either gives up and surrenders or continues to fight until they're all dead. Like that is actually the underlying state that we've layered all of these institutions and and sort of um, and on the uh, national level, what you would call discourse, right? On top mm-hmm. of it, at, at the bottom of it is this reality. Um, on on the the national level, like let's bring it back to the United States, that you know, if, if you have a Catholic right person with a conception of what's the good derived from Catholic doctrine, so uh, teachings about the, the, the human person, um, what is ethical, um, what's what is unethical, right? Um, what kind of behavior? And then you have, let's say, secular modernist atheist with a totally different conception of what the good and the good life and what is ethical. Right. Um, At the end of the day, you know, if you had a a polity made up of, let's say, 51 percent of these Catholics and 49 percent of um, the atheists and they fight right through, they either fight with each other because they want to live substantively very different lives and in very different polities, or they essentially both agree to adjudicate those concerns through this this institution, mediating whatever it is, that they both accept the legitimacy of that institution, kind of like arbitration in mm-hmm. law, right? Like we both accept, we accept the, the mediating process so that we can adjudicate this. But what's happened over time is we have such strong process in place mm-hmm. that has brought an enormous amount of peace uh, between people that we've forgotten that there's an underlying fight is that kind of what you're saying
1: yeah um, <clears throat> I think uh, it's always risky to confuse or uh, forget uh, that a certain um, uh, organization or uh, a certain concept uh, uh, works as a, a counterbalance to attention and to just assume that uh, once the process or the organization works, the underlying tens- tension has essentially disappeared, and uh, that's that's essentially the, the the assumption that's made by progressivism. Uh, you find this tr- uh, um, uh, uh, phrase in Kant that uh, uh, political modernity pr- produces a good that once uh, uh, here will perpetuate, per- sorry, perpetuate itself. And when Karl Schmidt talks about uh, anthropological pessimism, he isn't actually making a claim that is substantive about the evilness of human nature, is just reminding us that no amount of uh, uh, illusion about the progress of humanity can erase the underlying fact that all that can disappear uh, by the snap of a finger if, uh, if actual conflicts uh, emerge and that the kind of societies that are based on these premises of a, uh, um, a, a radical transformation of uh, human nature that would make us all peaceful, uh, 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 that such societies are incapable of defending themselves because precisely they have forgotten uh, what politics? Uh, it, it, um, uh, I mean, the kind of political po- uh, possibilities that are contained in having a political life, and, uh, and especially conflict, of course.
0: So, forgetting about conflict, perhaps, and and there's there's an implication in all of this so that in, both in your article and what you just said that um, you know the forgetting of these things can't last forever. <laughs>
1: Oh yeah, because uh, you know you, you chase nature, it comes uh, back with a fork. Uh, um, <clears throat>
0: <laughs> yeah, I know exactly the quote you're referencing. It was, you can chase nature out with a pitchfork, and yet she oh, keeps yeah. hurrying okay. back. That's Horace. Yeah. Um, so, so you
1: see, my English is not so good. <laughs> <laughs> but it's been uh, very
0: good thus far. These are like these are. Uh, that's why I told you uh, privately. I'm really impressed. Not obviously. I know people know many different languages, and as an American, I'm probably overly impressed by that fact. But uh, because we we don't do that because we have a giant country with no uh, no need to learn a lot of these um, languages on the border. But to talk about complex political topics, right, is a different thing than having a conversation about ordering coffee, right? It's just like a different yeah. level of, of um, precision required. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but just uh, go ahead. Also,
1: go ahead. Uh, so to, to come back to uh, a part of the discussion before, because I feel I, I digressed too quickly, uh, you were Talking about the asks uh, we, we make on each other, I think, and then on, on that possibility of a secular uh, uh, party and a Catholic one, uh, uh, part of the same uh, of the same uh, uh, political entity. Uh, I, I think we 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 today's politics is based on uh, making a lot of asks for ourselves while forgetting that uh, uh, while. Well, being unwilling to uh, ask, uh, make those asks from each other. And duties are essentially that Uh, you're granted things as a private man or an individual because exists that collective that is making claims, interpersonal claims about uh, that make such, such a collectivity possible. And uh, uh, I, I think uh, taking again, uh, like the, um, uh, the possibility of, uh, you know, of, of people uh, committing politically in the name of, uh, of their religion. Uh, um, <clears throat> I think it's, uh, it's something that, uh, uh, we should bear in mind in, uh, make, making such a, a, a community possible that, uh, the, the kind of scale at which nations work uh, to a certain extent uh, doesn't allow for the moral thickness and unity that you could find in the Greek city. And so there is a degree of, uh, of and even like to preserve freedom, as the founders uh, talked about factions, there is a degree of diversity uh, in ideas opinions and is- interest that is inevitable after a certain scale in human societies. Uh, but that doesn't mean in any way that uh, uh, sub- substantive demands couldn't be made uh, in the name of society, if only for the preservation of it. Uh, and uh, you're, uh, you you were mentioning also earlier about the divide between elites and uh, and, uh, um, basically the nowheres, uh, 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 those who uh, 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 um, have no choice but to live where they live, and they're not part of the educated urban uh, international class. Uh, I I think it's also part of that process of abstraction that people could think for a minute uh, that they are part of uh, some kind of elevated organism Uh, and living such a wonderful life without realizing that, uh, especially now, given the instability that is coming back within the international system, uh, without realizing that the conditions of their status are very nation-bound and that uh, uh, all the wealth you can have has actually no value uh, unless it is secured uh, by actual political power. And that political power doesn't exist uh, beyond uh, political sovereigns, we may have international institutions, and, and they're very uh, useful in many contexts. Uh, but they only exist uh, because certain you know cer- certain kinds of uh, relations exist between cer- certain specific nations. Those things are very fragile.
0: Yeah, I can two to wrap it up here. Um there are two concrete examples to take what you're saying and bring them I think down to our our recent politics. I can think of two. One, what you just described, right? Came home to a lot of people during COVID, especially people who had business contacts or even, you know, friends and family in different nations. All of a sudden, the with the global entry and and all of that the easiness of flying all around the world suddenly shut down and national borders became uh incredibly important again. Um, and, and, the second, uh, example I can think of is domestic where CNN had to sort of apologize to its angry viewers. Um, there's a, this is living in New York city. Um, CNN had to, uh, apologize to its angry viewers, right. For actually quote unquote platforming a presidential candidate, Donald Trump, because a lot of those viewers would like to forget that there's <laughs> an entire part of America that likes Trump, um, <laughs> and I think often the left behaves this way, they act as though Trump supporters will like disappear into the ether um, if, if they keep certain arguments out of the discourse or um, whatever else they, they like, don't seem to grapple with, grapple with the physical reality of millions of people who hold those views, right? Um, mm-hmm. In the same country as, as they are. So those are two examples from our modern politics, uh, I think of, of what you're highlighting, but um, Alexi, where can people find more of your work before we, uh, we wrap up here?
1: So if they speak French, um, um, they might go on the Figaro website. There is a list uh, of articles, but for English speakers, I've uh, published uh, in the National Review on uh, Foreign Policy. And for those of you who uh, are bored enough to read academic articles, I have a piece uh, out on Raymond Aron. And the moral and political con, uh, conditions of uh, liberal democracy during wartime, uh, which has been published in uh, the Review of History of European Ideas, and and that piece on public discourse.
0: Yeah, it's, it's been interesting to, to figure out. Now I really understand how the two halves of what you write about join together, right? So mm-hmm. your work is on war um, and international relations, but it turns out there are a surprising number, perhaps, which shouldn't be surprising, number of of uh, insights to apply within within nations as well and between citizens. Um, Alexei, thank you so much for for joining High Noon today.
1: Thank you, Ines. It was a pleasure, really. Bye bye. And-
0: Thank you to our listeners. (laughs) High Noon with Inez Setman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.